We're crossing the halfway point. Philippians is four chapters long. And so we're crossing the halfway point uh, this morning in our study of Philippians. Although if you look closely at verse 1 of chapter 3, it kind of looks like Paul is wrapping things up. He says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord, really wrapping up all that he has been saying so far about joy in the Lord. And then he says, I know I'm repeating myself, but I think it's for your good. I write the same things to you. It's no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And so in many ways, though we're crossing the halfway point, it looks like we're hitting the end. Whenever I write an important email, I always let it rest a night. And then the very next morning, I'm so glad I rested on that email. And I always have something else to say. And I believe that's exactly what is happening here with the Apostle Paul. Paul needs to add something. And I'm so glad he does because what he adds, especially in this passage, I think is very, very important. You're not supposed to say... I like this bit of the Bible better than that bit of the Bible. You're not supposed to say that. But if you were allowed to say that, I would say this is one of my favorite passages because this passage could change your life forever. It really could. It's got everything in it. So what I would like to do this morning is read the passage. You guys can follow along as I read it aloud. And then we'll ask God to do that this morning, to change us forever with his word. Let's start in verse 2. This is God's word. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, or boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if Anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's Word. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we are Your servants and we are listening. Some of us are not Your servants. We have not trusted You. We have not decided to follow You. We have not encountered you personally, but we're interested. We're seeking you. We're pursuing truth. I pray that you also would speak to us and that our search for truth, that our search for acceptance, our search for beauty, our search for rest would be found in you this morning. 
No matter where we are, we ask that you would speak to us. And it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Years ago, I read a strange little book by a man named Francis Schaeffer. Now, you may not, who Francis, may not know who Francis Schaeffer is. Francis Schaeffer, he died in 1984. That was when I was two years old, just to age me or to make me young, depending on where you are. Uh, Time magazine called him the Apostle to the Intellectuals. And like many people, myself included, in his 20s, he was called to pastoral ministry and he served faithfully and fruitfully as a pastor in his local context and his local congregations. But when he turned 39, which is just three years from where, where I am right now, he had a spiritual crisis. He writes these words, and I'm quoting him. We were living in Switzerland at the time, and I told Edith, which was his wife, That for the sake of honesty, I had to go all the way back to my agnosticism and think through the whole matter. He converted to Christianity from agnosticism. And because of this spiritual crisis, he decided to go all the way back to his agnosticism. And he tells in this letter, which I won't go on, about how he would pace back and forth at the top of their chalet in Switzerland. And he would just rethink all of the foundations that he took for granted. The result of this crisis was that strange little book I read years ago, and it's called True Spirituality. And as I read and studied this passage, I kept thinking of that title, True Spirituality. This, what you just heard and what I just read, is True Spirituality. Because in these 10 verses, we have a pure distillation of true spirituality. Just look how Paul starts off. Look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. These were false teachers. And Paul can't finish his letter. Remember, he begins to finish his letter. He says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. And then something snaps. And he's like, no, I got to add. I got to do a giant PS. And in this giant PS, I'm going to make sure... To offer an alternative to the falsehood that they are presenting. And so what is true spirituality? True spirituality does two things. True spirituality rejects self-confidence. And true spirituality embraces Christ's confidence. That's it in a nutshell. Rejects self-confidence and embraces Christ's confidence. And so let's take a look at each in turn and let's let the Apostle Paul guide us. So true spirituality first is a rejection of self-confidence. If you look at verse 2 again, Paul tells us that the false teachers are requiring, it's clear, Jesus plus circumcision. That's why he keeps on talking about circumcision. That's why he says we're the real circumcision. What's happening, we think, is that there were teachers in Paul's day and in the church of Philippi who were persuasive. And they were saying, Jesus is good, but Jesus is not everything. Jesus is vital, but he is not everything. What you need to be a true follower of Jesus and to be truly pleasing to God is you need to add to Jesus circumcision. Now, Paul is all about Jesus, but it's the and circumcision that gets Paul 
mad. It gets him really mad. Why? Because he believes that by adding to Jesus, you lose Jesus entirely. In a graphic play on words in the Greek, Paul tells that circumcision is actually mutilation. When it's added to Jesus. The false teachers think that adding to Jesus makes you an insider. But Paul says, no, you're a dog. And that was a, that was a word used for Gentiles. So the false teachers were saying, this is what will make you truly in God's inside group. And Paul's saying, no, actually by doing that, you are removing yourself from God's people. And he says, look out for evildoers, because the false teachers were saying, look, if you add to Jesus, it's making you more pure. And Paul says, no, 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 no. By adding to Jesus and Jesus alone, you are actually becoming an evildoer. How could this be? How could this possibly be? Why is this such a big deal to the Apostle Paul? It's because of this. It's because in this requirement, Paul is suggesting that it is self-confidence. It is bald self-confidence wrapped up in religious disguise. And that's why in verse 3, Paul says that what makes you truly spiritual What's he say? What makes you truly spiritual is when you put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. True spirituality, friends, rejects self-confidence. And Paul gives two reasons why this should be so. And the first is this, because self-confidence is spiritually dangerous. It is incredibly dangerous. Paul says in verse 4 that he himself has a lot of reasons to be self-confident. And the first four reasons he gives is privilege, things that he was born into. And the last things that he gives is more of his positioning, things that he adds to his privilege. So in the first four things, he talks about his circumcision, which makes him an insider, which makes him, uh, you know, he's not just a convert to Judaism. He was born into it. And then it says uh, he was circumcised. And then it says later after that, it says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. And he's of the people of Israel. And then there he's like, I'm not just a person of Israel, but I am in a pretty awesome tribe. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which sets me apart from some of those other lower tribes. And then beyond that, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am not appropriating Greco-Roman culture. Like I, my, our house, like growing up was incredibly religious. That's what he's saying. We did not let outside influences come into our house. We did not have a TV. That's what he would say. So it's all of his spiritual privilege. Things he did not do, but things that were true about him. And then the last three are him positioning on top of that. He took the most conservative approach to the law and becoming a Pharisee. He, he takes the most zealous approach to outsiders in persecuting the church. And then he takes the most rigorous approach to obedience when he says, as to the law, righteous. As to the law, I was blameless. But how does he assess these accomplishments? That's what's important to catch. Dangerous. 
That's what he says. He says these are dangerous. In verse 7, he describes his best accomplishments as liabilities. Whatever asset I had in my upbringing, okay, whatever asset I had, that's what you could read instead of the word gain in verse 7. Whatever assets these were to me, I counted them as liabilities for the sake of Jesus. He's saying these pluses became minuses to me because of Jesus. Before he met Jesus, when Paul was Saul, his accomplishments kept him from Jesus. That's why they were dangerous. And then after Jesus becomes a Christian and knows Jesus, he continues to say, they continue to be a liability. If you look at verse 7, he says, I counted them as a loss or a liability for Christ. And then in verse 8, if there was any doubt, I continue to count them as a liability. Because what kept him from Christ is tempting him to keep him away from Christ, even as he follows him. These things are tempting him to rely upon them instead of Jesus himself. To trust in himself instead of Jesus. And so, self-confidence, he says, is dangerous. This means the things that you are proud of are actually dangerous. Because functionally, you will be tempted to trust on them. To lean on those things. Especially when things get hard. You know, it's easy to confess Jesus alone, Jesus alone, when things are good. When things get hard, when things get tight, when relationships break down, when you hit rock bottom with addiction, whatever it is, you really find out where your trust is. Paul is saying self confidence is dangerous. Isn't that the exact opposite of what you hear right now in culture? Self-confidence is the answer. Self-esteem is the answer. Paul's saying something entirely different, and you have to hear him say it. Self-confidence is dangerous. Because it tempts you. It keeps you. keeps some of us from Jesus altogether. There's another reason. He gets a little bit more radical He says, you know what, this good stuff in my life, this stuff that tempts me towards self-confidence, it's not only dangerous, it's actually worthless. It's pretty radical. In verse 8, he looks back at his long list of accomplishments, and he calls it, well, my text calls it rubbish. Which is not what Paul said, by the way. Paul uses the, the Greek word for excrement which a very polite British person would call rubbish I suppose (laughs) but that's you kind of lose the force don't you when you hear rubbish I'm going to be crass and I'm going to break the rules of my homilatics professors when I was in seminary they said never talk about bathrooms when you're preaching Just want you for a minute to imagine the very bottom of a porta potty. You all know what that looks like, and you all know what that smells like. Isn't it's, it makes you almost want to vomit? That's what Paul is saying about his list of accomplishments. That's you have to feel the force of that. Self confidence is not just spiritually dangerous; it is spiritually, in light of Jesus, worthless. A few years ago, when my dad and I were crossing the border of Israel to Jordan. 
we were sitting on a, on a bus at the crossing station. And at that moment, I realized how my upbringing, my language, whatever accomplishments that I've ever made, my title, reverend, right? Whatever it is, none of it would help me get across that border. None of it. Frankly, not even my passport would have helped. What was absolutely necessary for us to cross was that we had a Jordanian travel guide who was approved and stamped by the kingdom of Jordan itself and their tourism department because he represented us. He was with us because of him. We got through. I'm just telling you that because of him, we got through. There would have been no other way. Paul is saying something very similar. He's saying we are all in a bus. And we're driving along. And then we have a Grand Canyon times a million. And he is saying your best accomplishments will not let you pass. The chasm between God's holiness and our sinfulness even though and even if we are entirely as religious as Paul was does not give you access. You need a representative who stands for you, who represents you. Everything else in relationship to that representative is porta potty worthless. <laughs> and Paul wants you to grasp that that representative, friends, is Jesus. Which takes us to the second point of true spirituality. If the first point is a rejection of self-confidence, the second point is an embrace of Christ-confidence. Paul's first point is negative, reject. His second point is positive, embrace. How do we get Christ-confidence? Two ways. Conversion and union. We'll take a look at both. You get a Christ confidence through conversion. In other words, you cannot muster this up yourself. It has to be given to you. Your heart has to be changed. Everybody has a baseline confidence in something. I grew up and I immediately started gathering things that I could be confident in in my life. And you all do the same. In other words, you cannot be confidence neutral. You have to take something. And it could be your studies. It could be your work. It could be how your neighbors view you. It could be your marriage. It could be your children and how they grow up. It could be your theology. It could be your political philosophy. It could be your appearance. It could be how much you weigh. It could be how your clothes fit. It could be your followers on Twitter. It could be your followers and your likes on Facebook. There are a number of things that we will accumulate like lint gathers to the things you throw in your pocket. Like lint or like moths go to a light. We will take things and we will grab them for our confidence. And we will dig deep. Some of you, it's your confidence is your parents' faith. That you were raised in a good church home. Like Paul, you have privileges that you did not do, but that you received. 
You had a good mom or a good dad or a good mom and dad. Or maybe you have a track record. Like Paul, outsiders could say of you, that is a good man. That is a good woman. And that is your confidence. And Paul is saying, unless the Spirit of God converts you, that will remain your confidence and you will be crushed when they fail you. But if God converts you, you start ascribing value and worth to Jesus over and above whatever your earthly confidences are. Isn't that what happens to Paul in verse 7 and 8? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And for His sake, everything that was an asset to me, I count now as a liability. See, Paul was converted. That's what happened. His heart changed. And this needs to happen to you as well. God the Spirit needs to change your heart so that you start to value Jesus over other things. It will not happen until God moves. It is an absolute human impossibility to value Jesus over even the best things in your life. Not just the sins and the icky things that we know are wrong. No, even the best of things. Valuing Jesus over your family. Valuing Jesus over your romantic partner. Valuing Jesus over your future prospects. Valuing Jesus over your savings account. Over your vacation in a week. Name it. That takes a supernatural miracle. Valuing Jesus over popularity at school. Over an A or even a B in math class. Valuing Jesus over making varsity or even making JV. Valuing Jesus over your parents and their love of you or their, or their views of you. Valuing Jesus over every single thing requires conversion. A change of heart. Because our hearts left to themselves... Do not value Jesus. We don't see the value in him. My wife's favorite thrift store is Volunteers of America in Clintonville. Anybody been there? Do you know that place? Yes? Amen? Good. (laughs) Well, a few years ago, Zach Bodish bought a print for $14.14 from Volunteers of America in Clintonville. And when he got home, he discovered that that print was an original linoleum print of Picasso. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm telling the truth. Uh, this was in the Columbus Dispatch. So somebody sold that print to Volunteers of America, or maybe even donated it. And then whoever saw this thing was like, four, that's worth four, you know what, that's not even worth $14, that's worth $14.14. <laughs> We're going to turn a profit on this thing. And lo and behold, it was a Picasso. They didn't know what it was worth. That's all of our hearts before conversion. We don't know what Jesus is worth. We don't. Conversion is when our eyes are opened, our heart is opened, and the surpassing worth of Jesus is exalted evermore in our life. So that's the first thing Paul talks about. 
Having a Christ confidence has to come through conversion. But the second thing that gives us a Christ confidence is union with Christ. Look at verse 9, just the beginning of verse 9, where Paul says, well, let's start at the end of verse 8. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. And be found in Him. In Him was one of Paul's favorite phrases. In Him. In Christ. In Him. I want to be found in Him. Well, that is what many people call union with Christ. So we are not only converted and have a new heart that sees the surpassing value of Christ, but the Holy Spirit also does something else, and it's amazing. And it's hard to really comprehend, but it's all over the pages of the Bible. You ready? He unites you to Jesus. He connects you to Jesus. Not just the work of Jesus, though He does that. Jesus Himself. You are united to Jesus. And this is the underpinning of every single good thing about being a Christian. Everything. Because if you're united to Jesus, you get everything that he has. You get everything that he is. You get everything that he does. He is your tour guide. Who lets you cross the border for one. But that's not all. He defeats death for you. He prays for you. Kids, when you're scared, He protects you. Adults, when you're scared, He protects you. He saves you. And Paul proceeds to spell out some of the benefits of union with Christ in verses 9 through 11, things that we're going to go into greater detail next week. But here's a preview. In verse 9, he says because he's in Christ, he's been declared righteous. If you're, listen, if you're not united to Jesus, then you present to God your record. But if you're united to Jesus, guess what you get to do? You get to point to his record. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says the union with Christ does more than just declare me right. It actually empowers me day to day. I have a new perspective on my suffering. He says that I uh, I may share in his suffering and his sufferings. My sufferings no longer are just pointless, but there's something and mysteriously connected to Jesus's own sufferings. Doesn't answer every question about our sufferings, but it gives us a new perspective. And then more than that, because we're united to Jesus, we're empowered day by day. We have resurrection coursing through our veins. We have new life. As much as Jesus is alive right now in his resurrection body, we are united to him. And what that means is that we were raised with him. And what that means is that we have a preview. We can actually be new creation degree to degree to degree in this life. That means your addiction does not have the final word. That means that your sin does not condemn you. That means that you, when you don't want to do the right thing, the Holy Spirit will enable you to do the right thing. That means that your sickness does not have the final answer either. That when Jesus returns, you will be restored fully. Your spirit doesn't just fly away from your Nasty body. That's not Christian. That's Christian. God made your body. He loves your body. He calls your body good. He calls this whole world good. And when he sent Jesus, he came not just to save our souls, but to resurrect our bodies. And this broken world. 
we're going to get into this more and more detail. So if you want to hear more, come next week. We're going to talk about these benefits of union with Christ. But let me just summarize union and the joy that union is and the gift that union is with this. I'm not a golfer. I'm not a golfer, but I know how to golf. You know, like there are people who know how to play chess. But when they sit in front of someone who plays chess, they understand that there's a difference between knowing how to play chess and actually playing chess. I feel the same is true about golf. There's a difference between knowing how to golf and golfing. Every time I'm invited to golf with my brother-in-law, for instance, I understand that I am not a golfer. I am a, I know how to golfer. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can swing a club and make contact sometimes with the ball. But every time I make contact with the ball, it goes that way. It's somehow I'm able, maybe because I play tennis, I'm able to spin that thing into the other fairway. His is nice and straight and and, and just dependable and always in the right spot. But what I love about playing golf with my brother-in-law is that we always play best ball and he's always on my team. That's the best part. What that means is that I can slice and lose 20 balls, but I still somehow win. Because his scorecard is my scorecard. That's best ball. Next time you play best ball, think of union with Christ. I'm not kidding. Because listen, when you are united to Jesus, you get his scorecard. That's the, that's, that's the deal. That's the deal. So when you sin, it doesn't condemn you. It's his scorecard. So what is true spirituality? It's moving from self-confidence to Christ-confidence. Do you see the shift? It's an entire shift of, it's an entire way of approaching. I mean, religion is not like this. Religion is a sort of baptized self-confidence. This is entirely different. This is Christ-confidence. It's being accepted and loved because of what Christ has done, not because of what we do. And the minute we try to add something to that, Paul's going to say, don't mutilate yourself. He's going to say, stay on Christ, stay on Christ. If you want a single word that Paul gives us, you can do no better than verse 3 where he says, glory in Christ or boast in Christ. The word boast is the summary of what true spirituality is. I learned recently that boasting is a battle metaphor. I learned this, that armies would boast before battle. That's what a boast comes from. And that's what Paul's tapping into when he talks about boasting or glorying. So in Beowulf, who's read Beowulf lately? Anybody? No? Okay. All right, somebody. Um, In Beowulf, what you would do is the soldiers would come in to the mead hall and they would drink mead and then they would boast. They would boast. Before battle. You see this whenever New Zealand's international rugby team plays rugby when they're warming up. Have you seen the All Blacks do the Haka? Have you seen that before? What are they doing? They're boasting before battle. Or a boxer in weigh-in day. Have you ever seen that? What are they doing? They're boasting before battle. Boasting is proclaiming your deepest confidence, especially when you are hitting hard things. And when you know you're walking in the hard things. So what is the hard thing that you're walking into right now? That's the question. What's the hard thing you're walking into right now? Paul would like to suggest that you ask this deep question and answer it honestly. What is your boast as you walk into that hard thing? What is your boast? Is it Jesus or something else? If it's something else, 
you're not going to make it. If it's Jesus, you'll have rest.